welcome to the Soccer Camp. It's time to break down the barriers. A show dedicated to creativity, adaptations, and purpose. Stupendous! The greatest moment I've seen in Premier League football. Real coaches. Real talk. Unbelievable! Real growth. Now, welcome your host, Roberto O.B. Hernandez. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Soccer Cat. Today, we have a legend in the game. Uh, his name is Mark Christie. He's a current U13 uh, MLS Next Academy coach with Breakers FC, also the youth director for Amadon FC, and owner of Euro Soccer Training. Um, doing great stuff up north in California, um, near the Bay Area. Definitely, definitely uh, uh, one of the best uh, soccer coaches in that area. Very knowledgeable. And, you know, he's here to just have a conversation with you guys. And uh, we want to thank Mark for joining us. Thanks so much, Roberto. I don't know if I'd put myself in legend status, but I've definitely uh, had a few good nights out along the way. Yeah, there you go. Uh, every coach on here comes on to be humble, dude. Uh, I, I like yeah. to consider, you know, everything that the coaches have done, um, some, somebody like you, we're definitely uh, legends, at least legends in the making. And uh, when I say legend oh, as well, shit. always top class, you know, every, everything you've done, every conversation we've had, everything's been top. Thanks so much. The Burton are really glad to be on and looking forward to it, mate. Yeah, yeah. let's get into it. Uh, Mark, can you give us a brief introduction of where you grew up and like, obviously what got you into the beautiful game? Oh, happy to, mate. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a, a city in the northeast of Scotland called Aberdeen. And that's where famously known for a couple of things, but big oil, big oil place, but um, more famously known for Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson's first big success story was taking Aberdeen to the European Cup Winners' Cup final and beating Real Madrid. So my hometown was basically, I grew up in a little community called Seaton, which was about a mile from the stadium. So I, I grew up in that kind of inner city, typically kind of low income, near near the near the stadium environment Um you could literally hear, I could hear goals from my, from outside my house, right? I would be out playing at six-year-old and hear the stadium roar. And then I think it was about seven or eight, I got to go to my first game. And, you know, just very lucky to live in such a, a kind of part of Aberdeen or part of the world where so many kids love football and, and so many kids in such a close area. You know, so many kids like obsessed with football. So just a perfect breeding ground for for soccer and, and learning to love the game. Like, and you think about guys like I don't know if you've heard of Dennis Law. Um, he won the Ballon d'Or way back in the days in the sixties. He probably stayed about a mile up from where I lived. So very lucky to just be kind of thrown in, just born into a soccer culture. Really, you know. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it, especially being so close to the, the stadium. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, playing a little bit of pickup soccer or training on the side and just hearing that the loud, like you said, erupting of goals and fans cheering it kind of uh, probably motivated you even more, right? Hearing it right outside as you're training, you know, something oh. that your goal, right? I think, I think like my, my youth had some incredible moments, like being it being maybe an eight and nine-year-old, climbing up what was called the Broad Hill. It was a big hill where you could kind of sneak a little view of the game. 
and you'd see thousands, like, you know, it could be a day where we play Glasgow Rangers and you'd see thousands of Rangers fans come in or Glasgow Celtic, you'd see thousands of Celtic fans and, and just seeing seeing the passion, hearing the noise at such a young age. And then, so I think there was two two main factors that got me into soccer. One, it's you seeing that professional feeling, the tribal culture of like thousands of people going to a game. And then just the amount of people in my area that would knock on your door Robert, they're literally like, hey, knock, knock on your door. You come out to play football, and it was just every day. It was morning before school, lunchtime after school, all through the summer. It was just, it was on the, it was on the news. It was in the news newspapers. It was on the radio. It was just, I was very blessed. I didn't really have a choice but to love soccer, you know. Yeah, it's that's kind of interesting. Do you think? Obviously, it's not an easy answer, and it would take multiple episodes. But do you think that's kind of a reason why the U.S. struggles to develop that soccer culture because we're so big of a nation and everything's so spread out? We don't have, you know, the the people that are soccer fans aren't necessarily always living right next to each other, right? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I'm sure, like. I'm sure that sparked thousands of conversations around the world. Um, I think some things that pop into my head are, if you think about, you know, maybe playing basketball in New York, I'm sure there's areas in New York that were almost identical to my upbringing, but for um, basketball, right? And then when I see, I see the passion for American football, like it's incredible, right? I mean, I remember first coming over here and watching NFL games and thinking, wow, that's pretty similar to the passion of soccer, but I didn't see that in the MLS. When I first came over in 2004, I didn't see a similar kind of passion in the MLS. I think it's changing now, right? I think you look at um, Seattle, Portland Timbers, Atlanta, there's some, even like new clubs popping up, like uh, Austin, got incredible atmospheres, you know? I think it's something where typically soccer was seen as a suburban sport. Maybe I'm wrong, but just as a young, in, in my early 20s coming over here, I was always doing soccer in like suburban areas where it was more spread out. I wasn't really going into like high density housing areas. So I think you're right, it is a different culture here, but maybe it can evolve over the years. Um, good, Yeah, but it's so much, you could talk about this for, for hours, you know. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, something that we're still trying to solve every day. Um you know, you mentioned that you came over here in 2004 and you said you were coaching. How did you get involved in coaching and what was it? Was it camps coming over here? Were you coaching back home before? Yeah, good question. Um, well, for me, it was um, a bit of a kind of love-hate relationship with soccer from about 13 to 19 where I was playing on a high-level team. Uh, sorry to go back in history a little bit, but it's probably good to try and give some some background. But basically, played on a high level team in in my local city called Albion, um, and I was on a, a good path. You know, there was uh, some scouts from a pro club were phoning my parents' house, um, so I was very interested. Really wanted to be a professional football player, like that would have been my dream. I remember sitting on the bus um, going to school when my mom mentioned that the pro club had reached out for me to go and try out. And I was almost like goosebumps. I was in almost in tears. You know, this was my dream, you know, this is all I wanted to do. And then what happened is they changed the the school year to the calendar year, which meant I was a December birthday. Rob. So I went from being a kind of D 
decent player, top half of the team, but now the youngest in the play in the team a year up. So actually kind of we have an expression in Scotland called like to bottle it, which means to kind of like get a little bit nervous and kind of cool out. And and that's what I did. I think at 14, 15, I was a bit nervous to be playing up on that. I was the smallest kid on the team and and I kind of fell out of love with soccer. I got a couple of bad injuries and I stopped playing until I was 17. And just by chance, I actually went to community college in Edinburgh where the local professional team Hibernian played. And yeah, just a, a guy spotted me and said, hey, I'd like you to come and start training with us. So I was getting to train um, with the uh, the SPL team there in the mornings. I was doing some work um, with them and then playing for the college. So that's where it really sparked my passion to play football, to really, really, really get obsessed with football again. And then then I was in my about 20, Rob, and I had no, I basically had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. And then I had to decide between uh, video production and sports psychology and sports science and I chose sports science and sports psychology. And then it was in my first year at university. Um, I saw a poster which said um, soccer um, instructor internship in Boston. And that's how it all started for me. You know, so you're talking about this love-hate relationship with like wanting to be a pro, maybe not making like decisions, not making it, and then deciding, okay, I could possibly be a coach. Um, and that's how it all started. I got, I got a po- I saw a poster I applied and I basically had one year to prepare to be a coach. So I got, let's say I got the nod about October 2003. I had maybe nine months to prepare to go to Boston and I'd never coached in my life. So I've got this internship coach. So I've got this job coaching in, in Boston, um, but never coached in my life. So I'm like, well, where, what did I do? You know? So then that's where I, I spoke to the local professional club Aberdeen and they kind of, told me how I can get on the, into the licenses, you know, started with the kind of early, early um, touches award, which is for like six to eight year olds. And, and that's how it all kind of came together, you know. Wow, that's definitely an interesting one. Just kind of answering a, a wanted help poster kind of in a, in a sense. Um, it's kind of interesting that you have that sports psychology and sports science background because I was speaking with a, a, a fellow coach of mine, uh, Lee Robinson, who did play in Scotland for a little bit. Um, he was speaking on the mental side of the game, and it's something he tries to help players out so much today that, you know, you mentioned that you went in uh, to the tryout at like 14 or 15, and it was definitely a new experience, and you, and you, you know, the term you use, you bottled it. Um, yeah. Do you think so many times that we put too much pressure on these young players in the sense of, we don't help them with the mental side of the game and they actually could be, you know, far phenomenal players, but because no one's trained them on the mental aspects, they fall short. Or like my buddy Lee said, you know, they're in these academies and then out of nowhere, we just cut them and tell them they're not good enough. Like we never no, look at the mental question. aspect of it. No, I'm, I'm obsessed with, um, obsessed with uh, mental training and mental skills and and I'm basically when I'm when I'm coaching kids I, I always like I'm totally biased because I always think like what would I've said to myself like I feel like if I could have coached myself as a young 13 14 15 year old I could have became a really good player like, I feel like I could have played pro you know so I'm really obsessed with the mental skills like you think about 
Like when I was, so let, let's put yourself in my shoes. Like I'm, I'm 14 year old, 15 year old. Um, and the coach tells to me, you've got loads of potential. You're very technical. You're really, you're a good football player. But we're not going to play you because you're small, right? Well, what, what am I going to do at 14, 15? I'm just going to, just going to give up, right? You know, you don't, you need to be more detailed than that. You need, when you're speaking with kids, you need to give them hope. You need to give them a plan. Most kids like don't have a plan. So I think the mental side of it, if, if he told me, okay, like this is the plan for you. You're not going to start now on this top team, but we're going to have you play on like a B team. And then we're going to work on strength and conditioning and we're going to set you goals and, and just, you know what, keep working on your technique until your body catches up. But there was, I, I grew up in an environment where it was like survival of the fittest, old school. We're going to like army style, right? We're going to break you down. And if you can survive it, fine. If you can't, then good luck. You're just another person who quits, you know? And I, I just think I needed a coach who was maybe a little bit more, um, you know, and, and, you know, passionate, maybe, sorry, maybe a bit more caring and a little bit more knowledgeable on, how to fix it. Cause I, I had a coach who, you know, they're just thinking that they're just mostly dads, like mostly volunteers. Their job's just to like, typically their job is just win the game. If you were talking about mid nineties, just win the game. That was your dad, dad's job was to help the team win the game. Dad's job wasn't to create a three to five year plan for a little Mark to then become the best version of himself, you know? So when I look back, I always, I'm very biased that when I see players who are small, I think, well, I can help this guy because I was in that shoes. And just as on the flip side, when I see players who are really um, early developers, I also know that those guys I overtook. So I know personally I overtook those early developers because I had much more passion, much more um, desire to, to learn knowledge. So I'm also looking at them and thinking, you need a technical plan as well. You need mental skills because life's, life's good for you at the moment as this big early developer. So... I'm obsessed with the, the mental side of the game. Like I'm obsessed with teaching kids um, you know, variety of life skills, time management, um, confidence, breathing, visualization, you name it. It's something I'm really into, especially since I started going to college, uh, University of Aberdeen. Yeah, it's, it's something that we as coaches, not many of us have a background in psychology and it's something that we're trying to learn, you know, from conversations like this, from people who have studied the game or not the game, studied that side of it. Um, and I think it's very, very important, you know, like you said, um, to prepare a plan for the individual player rather than just worry about the results. And that's something I wanted to ask you about, you know, you being here in the U.S., you kind of know, uh, well, you know, the club environment, the academy environment. How can we as coaches, directors prepare those plans and communicate it to the parent and the player without them have, you know, just saying, oh, screw being on the B team. I'm just going to go play for so-and-so's ace team. And, yeah, you know, the development might be better in-house and it's a long-term plan and you're showing it with the idp but parents don't want to stick around on the bench or or on the quote-unquote b team right yeah it's a good question it's a, it's a really good one um i think there, there's multiple levels to this that i think you you need to earn the parents trust i think if the parents trust you um then it's more easier for them to stick around right so how how do you earn someone's trust? You can do it by many, many ways, right? You can do it by a small talk. You can do it by, you know, like getting to know them as a person. 
you can do it by simple, like sacrificing your time. It's like how many coaches are willing to sacrifice an hour on a Zoom with a parent who's maybe not not a starter or going to be on the B, B, B team, you know? I think you can earn their trust with knowledge. I think you can earn their trust with measurable tangibles, you know? Um, like actually show them facts, show them actually um, other tra- other players you've done it with. So I think it's a, this is something I'm really passionate about and I'm, I'm pretty good at coming up with actual evidence and, and history of players in the same boat as him. Because you start to see different types of players that come up again and again and again. Every kind of three or four years, you see the same type of players. The kids that are kind of smaller and technical and, um, hit puberty later or the guy who shoots up early and he, he was a superstar at 99 and then now he's lost his coordination. So I think it comes from, um, yeah, hopefully that answered the question, but it's like, are you willing to put in the time with a parent to earn their trust? I would say would be the big thing, you know? Yeah, I think that's important. Just like, I know we say it a lot, but the player doesn't care about how much you know until they know about how much you care. It's the same thing with the parents. Uh, parents want yeah. to know that they're not just a number um, here in America, right, the pay-to-play system, they're not just, you know, a paycheck, um, but you actually care about their child. And I think that's important, Mark. And obviously, thank you for, for touching on that. And kind of going into that, I kind of wanted to speak a little bit about your own coaching philosophy, you know. Um, what would you say is a important aspect of your coaching philosophy and what factors has kind of influenced it to what it is today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um I think I've been very fortunate that um, that I've had a pathway that's really developed. It's almost like I've jumped, like when I saw that poster, almost like I jumped into the river and just got caught in the, the tech, you know, just caught in the stream. And along the way, I've kind of naturally been very, very lucky, you know, from going, some of the people I've met. So just in a, in a kind of quick summary, I think I was very lucky to meet a guy called Mohamed Yakubali, who, who was uh, working at Bolton University and working with Bolton Wanderers. He kind of opened my eyes to nutrition, sports uh, science, strength and conditioning as a young 21-year-old you know, at university. And then along the way, I got influenced heavily by Aberdeen Football Club to start with. So that they were all about um, planning sessions, coaching in the game, technical development, like obsessed with technique. I think the Scottish system from 6 to 12 is basically every time they make a technical mistake, stop it. So that energy, like I I was inspired by guys that were so passionate and energetic about technical development. And I don't see that here on a mass scale. I don't see guys really care if a kid has a bad shooting technique or passing technique or maybe doesn't do a scissors with a good kind of you know body posture or body movement so i had that had that kind of quick inspiration and i was inspired by a lot of great coaches early as a coach and i could go and watch them you know every night and take notes and then if you kind of go through the journey um the sports psychology piece started a lot with major league soccer camps the owner was a site um a sports psychologist and they taught me about learning styles and then I had my own they told me hey Mark this is your personality these are your six or five or six signature strengths and um, you're very competitive you're you're a natural teacher you care about individuals you understand history and context 
um, and I think there was a couple more. But so I was very lucky within the first two years. I thought I had no money, you know, I was earning peanuts, but I could watch. I had access to all these really great minds, and that kind of growth mindset I had, that desire for knowledge, I should give my parents some credit as well. Um, they're probably the biggest factor, but. I was just on this, you know, as I said, jump into the river. Now I'm learning from Aberdeen Football Club, from Bolton Wanderers, some um, top psychologists. And you, you keep going along and it's this continual journey of like, okay, I spent two two years with the former La Masia um, director, Albert Pouge, where I got to spend time and watch him. And then I remember going to watch a lot of Sean Tequiris, um training at Force when he was coaching there. And then you look at some work with guys like, Luciano Fusco, Alex Cavello at San Jose Earthquakes, Paul Holliker, another huge influence. He's now the Houston Dynamo Academy director. So I think it was a mixture, though, of like me having this huge competitiveness to try and find out more every day to try and like be the best and get as much knowledge as I can. And then just this wave of like seem to be every one or two years I get this. I don't know if it's luck, but I seem to get a good I seem to meet somebody who's like incredible at what they do you know yeah that's that's very interesting i like that you mentioned a lot of the people that influenced you along the way and that you were able to you know shadow them and observe their training sessions and i think that's something that um when we say coaching education that is a piece that i think is huge right can you you know speak to mentors can you speak to coaches and see what they're doing at, at the same levels you are um and what makes them successful and kind of a, going along that uh, approach, you I mean, you mentioned many great things that I wanted to ask questions about, but how can coaches, you know, maybe they're up and coming, get involved or, or I guess, reach out to these type of uh, environments to be able to train? Because I feel like, or to be able to observe, because I, I, I feel like too many coaches in the U.S. are very, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, just like scared to open up their, their yeah. training sessions. So it's what? A good question. Yeah, what advice could you give coaches when they reach out? My advice, which is quite uh, might sound a bit unusual, is but you you find that the most the best coaches are the most open. Like I honestly, if I was a young coach living in San Jose, just now, I would I would email like Jeremy Gunn at Stanford, and you know like the like I'd start with him, you know, and you'd be surprised he might even let you come in and watch. Well, it's like, so don't, so I think like you'd be surprised. It's normally the guys that are kind of haven't made it yet are a little bit more protective. You know, the guys that maybe have potential, but they're not, um, they're a little bit scared of handing out their ideas. You know, the guys who have like, the guys who are really confident in what they do, like they're open to people coming in. So like, um, and I think they, and I think they're more open in, in America. I think in, in Scotland, where I grew up in England, when I visit some clubs, it was very secretive, like dog eat dog, like nobody wanted to share ideas. It wasn't until I came to America and you see how open um, people are here. So I did I did feel it was more open. And then the Scottish culture um, has changed a lot. English culture, there, there are a lot more sharing goes on. Even look at Sam, like Sam creating that group with all the, you know, we've got this special group in WhatsApp with all a lot of top coaches. I don't think that would have happened in the 90s. Obviously, there wasn't technology back then, but just the concept of guys in the same league sharing ideas, non-existent. So I think for young coaches, um, literally start with the top. So let's say you live in an area. Who's the top five colleges? Who's the top? And then just look at league tables. 
look for, look for the best. Like who who just won the U17 league? Okay, we'll try him. U19, U14, U12. Start with the best, and you you might get you, you might find it's easier than you think to get in. Yeah, a uh, uh, little bit of a plug for Baker Show there, right? Jeremy Gunn from Cal State Baker Show as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Um, but yeah, shout out to Sam for creating that uh, coaches collective. I know it's definitely given me a lot of workshops that I've been able to take as resources. Is uh, was able to first communicate with you, uh, Mark, via you know that that group chat, and then we met up um, in San Diego, but. Yeah, we appreciate Sam for putting that together. And it, I think it's pretty crazy that you said, um, you know, that the U.S. is open. So it, it, it definitely gives me an outside perspective to see that. Um, I know I'm backtracking here a little bit, but you mentioned that you fell in love that with Scotland, they would really put a heavy emphasis on the technical and help players, you know, with the correct shooting um, technique. Would they do that? in isolated areas or what to do it with a pose and teamwork and then obviously you got to shadow albert pooch which is very you know game like rondo's ssp's small-sided games um yeah can you kind of speak on the differences of that of why la masia kind of stays away from isolated techno technical drills versus scotland was very very uh emphasis on on technical and i think they both produce uh, great players along the way yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, so I would say the like I, I remember doing my youth license uh, back in uh, 2010, right? And one of the, the the course was split into three three parts, right? It was one was uh, sh shaping a team, so you know your you know your basic like your your formations, your strategy, your you know moments of the game, so the ta team tactical side. Right? The other part was how how much you can improve technique in a coaching session. So imagine like if you're doing a coaching session on like combination play, um, out wide, attacking in wide areas and across maybe, and then guys going into front post, back post, but really assessing on like the quality of how you could influence technique. So like if the guy was, you know, on the wing, does he get his head up? Can he chip it to the back post and the finish? So that was cool. And then the third part was doing a, a private lesson. Now, when have you ever had a, a? When have you ever been assessed for doing a private lesson in America? You ever heard of that? I never. never heard of that in USA, right? Yeah. Now that, that for me was incredible. And then one of my assistant coaches was a French coach, and he told me on the French youth license they check your technique, they rank you on your technique to be able to play long passes, shoot with both feet. So that was the culture I grew up in—a culture of like technique is huge. Like I grew up in that. It was some French influence, some Scottish influence. And the Scottish coaches were obsessed with, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, like, stop. This is how you should do your food. This, um, basically going back to your PE, like, almost like a PE teacher. Like what you do before the contact and then the follow through. So what your body does as you're about to hit a ball. So that was the culture I grew up on. And a lot of, you know, curver stuff, right? Yeah, so my, yeah. My, my first like my first three to four years of coaching was heavily on technique and then the psychology and the strength and conditioning so i, I had a good base right and I, I, just, I was studying sports science i understood people um going back then the, the basics were the same now like you would do unopposed you would do it with slight pressure and then you so you're basically going like one v zero one v one then maybe a three v two like that's pretty standard but I knew 
I knew Scotland at the time. I knew they were missing something tactically. So I, so I knew, like, I had this part. I need to find out more about, like, what span. I remember being obsessed with Brendan Rodgers and, like, 12-hour plane rides. to. Um, I, would, I would get the train to Glasgow, then down to London, maybe, like, 9, 10 hours in the train or 12 hours in the bus, studying different tactical websites. But coming back to, like, Pooj and how he's different, um, and I remember doing a private lesson up at a high school and a Spanish coach was shocked. He's like, what are you doing? What is this? Why are you coaching this this person technique? It was like not in their culture. Now I can only assume. This is my only assumption. I've never been spent a lot of time. I've never been to Barcelona. I've not spent a lot of time there. I can only assume that the kids play on the street and they can recruit the best players. So it just makes sense to work more in like decision making and and principles and team play. Um, having spent time with with Albert Pouge, like. I don't think he would ever, like, for a 14-year-old and up, I don't think it was in his... I don't think I've ever seen him doing, like, a private lesson or technical stuff. I would say, like, he was pretty obsessed with um, technique, technical execution and quality from about 9 to 12. He did talk about that. If you think about some of the Ajax stuff that you might see online, they are pretty obsessed with technical quality from 9 to 12. So I don't think the... This, the Barcelona and the Spanish are completely opposed to it. There is some, but it's just like, if you look at the, watching Albert Puj, it was like, you know, the first 30 minutes, as we know, was positional play, you know, um, you know, it's decision-making, right? It's decision-making based on, you know, where the pressure is, where the ball is. Then it was game, game-related um, moments, you know, it was like, okay, this is, uh, you know, a 5v4, we, we play into the 9, back to the 10, out to the winger, we dribble across and finish. And then really high-intensity games. So um, different from what I'm used to. You know, I, I was used to doing a lot more isolated stuff in Scotland, especially in my earlier time. And I, I do actually believe that um, you need both. And it was I've, I've been on some uh, really cool, like where I've been able to kind of um, do like tests almost. Like I've tried certain teams with just the Barca style, the push style. I've start, tried some with my own style. And I truly believe, like, I'm in the middle. That's what makes me unique. I think you need a mixture of personal training, um, a little bit of isolated stuff, mostly multitasking, game-specific, game speed, positional work. You need some team tactical, and you need, like, high-level um, decision-making in training. So that I'm, I'm a kind of mixture, a little hybrid of um, basically all the guys that have influenced me, you know. And, again, it's not... It's also come some of the stuff that I learned on, you know, playing football. That like you can't just be robotic all the time, and that's why I'm like coming. I know I'm going on a rant here, but I'm trying to kind of cover as much about my my beliefs. Like when I see when I see Italy against England in the final, and I see Italy go down one nil. I see Italy players, Italian players, they start started to excel in unstructured um, situations like stuff that you wouldn't normally structure. Like, you know, when, when you shape your team, it's typically everyone's in their positions, you know, a 4 three, 3 or 4, and everyone's, and then the opposition are all there in their positions. But what about these moments where it's kind of like a mid-transition moment and there's maybe a 4v3 on the side or 3v3 or even your numbers down. I saw some moments when Italy were like 3 against 4 and then the unstructured solutions was a different level. And that's why I'm, I think you need a mixture of everything. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I, I don't worry about going off a rant. That was great. Um, I think that's very important. I think there is should be a blend, a hybrid of of both uh, philosophies. You know, the technique versus um just games and just decision making obviously like you said you can teach the technical aspect in uh, a decision making in a game um and i think that's very important because i mean many times especially in the club world you know where you know maybe we get a b team and the players you know you eight they don't know how to pass the ball they've never done it even in club soccer so it's like how am i going to put them in in a small sided game when they can't even pass the ball you know so maybe it's a we go through the technique, we show them uh, several times, then we put them in the isolated, I mean, the opposed area. And I think that's very important. Um, and just something that you mentioned, um, you know, you may have a tactical point, but can you teach the technique within the tactical session? Um, and I wanted to kind of ask, so in your opinion, you know, for a 7v7, 9v9 model, these younger side of the game, would you kind of do maybe, you know, 15 minute of isolated skill work? and then going into a tactical point or would it be a whole session of maybe games, but you're focusing on technical, 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 and you're stopping it very often. Good question. Um, I, my, my personal philosophy is, um, let's say we've got a team, let's say we've got like a silver level team and we've got them from July to June. I would like to have, I would set little um, parts of the year, so July, August, where there was isolated technical part until it become a, became a habit. Because I wouldn't, I don't really want to do any isolated drills at all. But the difference between me and many kind of experienced coaches who are passionate about the about, about this is, like you just hit the nail on the head. If if that kid can't pass a ball, if he doesn't have the tools to do something. You're gonna spend. You're just gonna wait five years until he maybe hope that he works it out. I don't. I don't believe in that. I would rather have like, okay, coaches. I've looked at this silver team. Let's spend you know one hour a week on the fundamentals of passing technique, and let's hit the target by um, five weeks. We want to never do this again. We want to make every kid. It's a habit, and you maybe have to top that up and maintain it. Maybe you have to come back in a couple of months and remind the kid. But that's what I I do very limited, uh, isolated only. But I do do it for certain teams and certain players where I need like, hey, you need to hit these targets. Like we need to, but can you, you know, can you do a hundred juggles without, you know, with your eyes shut? Can you, can you shoot the ball cleanly with both left and like foot at an angle? Can you pass the, can you punch the ball in? Can you do like at least five moves smoothly with like good shoulder movements? So I am, I would say to coaches like, don't be, don't be scared of doing isolated um, drills just because some guy in Amsterdam or Barcelona who's working with top players says it's useless. If that makes sense, you know. Yeah, I think it's have, a, your, own, have your own opinion. You know, have your own insi- insights. Yeah, I think know? it's a point that you mentioned. Like many of these coaches, and that's that's really why I wanted this podcast to help the everyday coach is because many of these coaches they're phenomenal, but they're working with the country's best. Not only the country's best, sometimes in Barcelona and all these top academies, right? They're working with some of the world's best. And so, yeah, maybe sure. they don't need to work on these little aspects because these those players over there are probably working on it on their own outside of practice 24-7. While we here in the U.S., many times we only get three hours to work with players and they don't touch a soccer ball in between that. And I like what you said, Mark. I think, of course, you know, take resources and understand it and have your philosophy, but be flexible within it, right? Don't have a blanket yeah. statement that 
every U9 team has to be structured this way because you said there may be a U9 team that or U10 team that is a little bit further advanced versus another team. So, you know, like you said, you look at them, you assess them and say, what does this team need? And I think that's coaching one-on-one. Can you make adjustments for that specific team and not just do one session for, you know, here in America, we're coaching four teams, three teams sometimes. Don't do the same session for all the three teams. You know, can you make the adjustments? I think that's a very important thing that you pointed out, Mark. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and kind of going on that, uh, I know you, you've, you've spoken on in the past, um, but how can coaches, you know, innovate i know there's you know nowadays technology is coming out left and right um how can coaches properly use technology other than just the communication apps you know to help their their teams to help their uh parents even because i know at euro soccer training you guys offer parent education and i think that's something that's very important yeah it's a good question um technology is huge you know i i'm pretty opinionated about like there's so many there's so many things I see like um, for technology that will pop up and, and parents will buy it and it's like a little fad and I don't know if it really long if it's a long term fix you know like I had a had a kid it was this um, he asked me about this thing it was like imagine like a TV and you're standing at a TV and you're like pressing little buttons almost like an arcade game you know and um, where you just kind of like reaction something like cognitive reactions. And the dad's like, should I buy this? Will it work? And I'm like, well, each kid's different, right? I think if you were injured, let's say you had an ACL and you're in a cast or whatever, you broke it. Like, I think that would be okay. But for a young kid at 11, who I said, you'd be better doing just playing pickup soccer or just doing 1v1. So it's all, it's all relevant, right? I think um, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got my own app, Insight Training app, where I challenge kids to like multitask. I'm, I'm big on multitasking. Like if you're, passing against a, a rebounder can you be calling out numbers and colors and you know maybe there's there's um pressure as well so i'm big on multitasking so i think with technology coming back to your original question um there's so many little things that are going to pop up as a parent like sure try them right there's things like um the player maker by you know that you know checks how many touches you make in training i think that's quite interesting and um, there's a thing called i think it's called jack joku um, that's more for testing like really short speed drills. So maybe drills that are one, two, three seconds, four seconds, explosive speed. So there's loads of stuff. My my thing just now is like like Zoom for me is huge. Like everybody in the in the country, right? Everybody went on Zoom. But how many people are gonna continue using it? I am I like you were used we met down at Man City Cup. I did about four to five zooms throughout that tournament that I think gave us an edge and helped us win that. Now, most other teams, maybe I'm wrong, but I would suggest my instinct would tell me that probably none of the other teams we faced did Zooms in between games. So for me, like Zoom, I've used uh, Facebook uh, private groups. I've obviously WhatsApp. I've used an interesting thing that I learned from a teacher called Edmodo, uh, online classroom. I was doing that in 2007. So I'm I'm always big about um, memory and habits. I think that's the key. How can you how can you help players store knowledge and then make it a habit? Because there's so many things to teach kids, right? But if you don't think most coaches don't think like teachers, most coaches are instinctual and they think about the game. 
they don't think about forming like your your kids like need to memorize these things and be able to do them without you so they're always having to be you know pushed or like a, almost like a joystick you know if they're always having to be pushed you're not really doing your job like you could have amazing knowledge but you're only as good as what the players know i think i i i truly believe we're in a little bit of a culture where coaches are like how can i show i'm always about me and my knowledge well you're be humble like it doesn't care what you know be be impressed when your players know more than you or can can actively and um, teach others what you know you know like you if your center back could learn like I, I played right back a lot right and left back imagine if i could get a player from nine to 14 teach him everything i know about being fullback and then inspire him to learn another 30 40 things that i don't know because i'm not really watching and playing as much as i used to that for me is success yeah you can use technology you know even like google docs like simple things like that organizing notes organizing like things that they're learning in google docs and um, apps whatever so i definitely think every coach now has to be using technology yeah to help I, th the kids. I think that's really impressive obviously i saw you down in man city cup and I didn't know that you were doing the zooms behind the scenes. And yeah, you're right. You're probably one of the, if not one of the few, but probably the only one that hopped on these zoom calls and you know, you, you helped them improve from game a game and what, what they needed to do for the next game and how, you know, I think that's something that we don't do enough. Like you said, we're not taking it as teachers. We just show up to the field. We teach or we coach them there. We teach them there. But then we don't do it and we don't reiterate and hit it on the button. So would you recommend doing Zoom calls throughout the week? Maybe one at least minimum? Yeah, so we so just to give you a little insight into our, our training, we'll do one Zoom call every week. And it will either be, I'll mix it up. Sometimes it will be strength and conditioning or match analysis or match preparation. So those are the three things I'll do on Zoom. Um, strength and conditioning class match analysis or match prep where I'll just put the camera next to the tactics board and, and kind of take them through. And I've got huge buy-in from the players. And again, I'm one of the few coaches and look, don't quote me on this because you will see me sometimes with a tactics board, but nine times out of 10, you won't see me doing long speeches on a tactics board 45 minutes before a game. You'll see me doing it 24 hours before the game. Um, and you actually won't because it will be, be in the private setting of a Zoom. But uh, that's what I believe in. I, I think the night, the week, uh, it's very, uh, very Jose Mourinho inspired. Like, it's like, do all your work so you can just like chill out on the match day. Do all your work in training. So match day is relaxed. It's fun. It's freedom. It's creativity. The players take charge of it. He talks about the tactical culture that he creates. So he makes it fun. He makes it interesting during the week. Maybe not now, but back in the day, if you read some of his, um, you know, some of his players talking about him at Inter Milan and Chelsea, back when he first started it's this tactical culture where you've got like guys who maybe didn't think so much about tactics starting to become obsessed and in game like making suggestions i think pep's another one who's done it with players that are like guys like walker and stones who probably never had that deep discussions so he makes it part of the culture so that's something i'm very passionate about not just that hey you know you've, you've you're in your in your mom's suv you're, 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 you know, you're rushing down your breakfast and then some guy's telling you exactly what to do. You just want to be free, right? You need subconscious programming a little bit to work as a team, but there should be a lot more freedom on match day, especially when they're young, you know? 
Yeah, and uh, kind of speaking on that tactics board, I think it's kind of the same way my entire time, you know, through uh, my education. I never, about two hours, three hours before test days or when we would have the test, I, w- I wouldn't even really study the day of the test because I believe, you know, especially when people are cramming it in right before, your brain is so, you know, trying to process everything that you're just trying to feed it that you actually forget so much, you know, right before and you forget the things that you do know. So I think that's important. The same thing is when we're trying to feed the player, you know, the whole two, three weeks of uh, tactics in one hour before a game, it's the same thing. They're not really going to retain it. And the things that they didn't know now just kind of got pushed to the back. Um, And kind of speaking on that topic again of, you know, let the games be a little bit more relaxed and have fun. How many coaches do we see on the sideline? We saw at Men's City Cup that are constantly screaming for 30, 60 minutes of the game. Yeah, it's tough. Like, I think um, my – this is quite a funny one, uh, Robert. Um, if, if you were to watch me coach at tw- – when I first started coaching, right, I literally coached every single um, decision of the back four. Like every single, I was, and I, I was so passionate, right? I was like coached and it would, it was effective, right? It was really effective because I was like basically like the captain of the defense. You push up, cover, cover, cover. But long term, like for even for your, for a coach's health, right? I don't think it's, and even for the players, like what happens when I can't coach that player? So I started realizing like I'm not actually helping them. So, I changed my mindset and I, and I created lists of everything I would say. And I showed them videos from different angles. So we would watch it from um, what I saw as a coach from the side, what the keeper would see, what a center mid. And I started passing on all the knowledge and then I would test them. And then you start creating players that then you can just, hey, uh, two center backs, can you just warm up the back line organization? And, and I think there's a lot of coaches are... Are, are doing it. it's pretty normal now right but i think um as much as you can you've got to pass on knowledge and then you know i think demonstrate show them you be the leader for a couple of weeks is fine because there's still a part of that like we live in a culture where unless kids see guys that are passionate and see guys that are tough and aggressive at times then where are they going to see these role models so it's it's a very interesting topic. I think about I think deeply about all these things all the time, right? When is when is a kid gonna see anyone even close to like a Roy Keane figure in their school, in their home, in their soccer? So it's interesting you say that, right? I think there's what what's the balance, right? If a if a coach is imagine a player had a coach who was like quiet and very composed from six to eighteen, and then suddenly makes the national team. He's up against some you know, really aggressive center mid from another country. Like, at what point have we have we tried to make a kid aggressive? Or you know, so it's interesting. I think there's a balance, right? But I don't. I definitely don't think shouting the whole practice and coaching the whole like shouting the whole game and coaching the whole game's the the optimal way either. You know. Yeah, and kind of it, on that topic of you know having a same coach from you know multiple years. In your opinion, how often should clubs, you know, change a coach? Say, say a coach is doing really well with the team for three, four years. It's, At a certain point, should they really change them question. or should they leave yeah. the coach there? It's a really good question. I think, I think if I like, I, I watched this documentary about uh, Dynamo Kiev, and I thought it was really interesting. 
they have a they have a father figure goes through the whole generation. So they have like let's say a guy um in his late forties, fifties, maybe even early sixties who's kind of semi-retired um and he just maybe played pro and he's got the money in the bank. So he'll be like the father figure and he'll go with the team from youth U twelve to U nineteen or U U eleven to professional, you know? But they'll bring in assistant coaches every year. So bring in like one or two new so you've got like new new energy, new ideas coming in every year. But you've also got that father figure who follows the team from U eleven to like almost to pro level. And then they bring in young assistants. And as a if I was a parent at a club paying like huge amounts of money per year, there's part of me would quite like that. Because there's a lot of time where a kid's doing well and there's no communication when the coach trans, uh, transfers over. Like when a new coach comes in, there's not enough communication, I see. Like when I when I hand over a team to another coach, I write a page of notes and you know ideas for every single kid because I want them to do well. I don't think that's common practice at every team. So there's a lot of times where like just by the luck of the draw, the coach doesn't really think you should be playing that position or doesn't believe in your unique strengths. So you could argue that the coach staying all the way through would be good for team chemistry, good for team cohesion, good for that individual, and then maybe bring in assistance. The other side of it is, it does it become stale? You know, I, I probably, my instinct would tell me like two to three years is a good time with a team. And then it's probably smart to pass it on. It's just like, it's it's sad if the coach is maybe too different a style or, or doesn't really care about the history. You know, I think it's important to like, you know, at least know and study what went you know, what happened before. Like if you're taking over a team for that has been together for three, four years, like, you know, find out about the personalities of the kids, because kids change, you know, kids could be have a bad injury and like suddenly they're six months behind and the coach just doesn't trust them because he's never seen them at their best, you know. So I'm quite passionate about that kind of it's a good question, you know. Yeah, I think it's important what you pointed out was that you prepare a plan to kind of uh with notes for the next coach that is gonna come over and take it over. How many of us take over teams that have no idea what's going on? Like you just said, we don't know if this player was doing phenomenal and has some stuff going on at home and then you know the new coach comes in and just cuts them or acts them from the team, you know. Um I think that's important. I think that's something clubs should uh do moving forward is you know, hey, we're going to move you to another age group, but can you prepare a, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, call it transition paperwork or transition feedback, yeah. you know, and nothing too long. It could even be an audio, a video clip, right, Um, to give yeah. to the next coach. So they're coming in with a little bit of understanding of what's going on, what the I team needs to work on. If you look, if you look at my brain as a holistic, right, so, you know, for me, like more is better because I, I want to know, like, how the kid thinks, what's his personality? So you think of mental skills and social skills, like what's his home environment? Um, and then physically, what has he had any injuries? Does he have any potential injuries, like, you know, warning signs that could happen in the next year? And then what are his best games? Like what are his five best games? Like I, I would like, if, let's say uh, I'm taking over your team, Roberto, and you've, you've got a number 10 who's uh, suffering from Oshgood Slatter's and he won't be ready for three months. Tell me about his best ever games. Like, write that down or show me a couple of clips or tell me in a short call. But normally it doesn't happen, right? So that kid's like, he's already at a disadvantage because the coach doesn't really believe in him, right? Because he's never 
coming back from injury. So it's something that we lose a lot of players because of this thing, these type of things. We lose like so many talented players in this country. Yeah, and I think, like you said, the more is the better is, you know, many coaches in the club world, myself included, we want to be able to coach at, quote unquote, the highest levels, the elite levels. But are we doing the, the everyday things that are needed, right? Like you just said, all this extra stuff that we're talking about right now, most club coaches won't use. They won't use the technology. They won't, um, you know, take the Zoom. They won't get to know the parents. They won't get to know the, the individual. But I think that's something that's important. All those extra stuff that seems like, oh, it's going above and beyond, that's standard in, in you know, the quote-unquote elite levels, the professional levels. Yeah. That's, that's just the oh, bare minimum. Sure. And so it's like yeah. if we expect, you know, our players to do all the homework outside of uh, practice, do everything on their own, why can't we do it? Especially here when we're being paid by the players to do it, you know, why aren't we going above and beyond like you, uh, Mark and I think, honestly, Mark, it's an inspiration, you know, everything you're doing. And I, I think we can all learn from it. Um, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely taking the time to prepare these teams for the long term rather than just can we win right now, here and there, you know? No, totally, totally agree. And Individual-based, you know? Mark, we've covered so much, and I know people are going to take out so much knowledge from this conversation um, just the last question, Mark, any advice to coaches that are listening to this, either young or experienced? Yeah, I wrote some, um, I wrote a kind of a few notes um, on this. So my advice to coaches, I've, I've kind of bought, got like six, six parts to this, um, Rob. So the first part I would say to a coach is either become a holistic coach where you're your mindset is, I want to learn about everything. I want to learn about how physical therapists work, how technical coaches work, speed coaches work, psychologists, team tactics, you know, um, um, scientists, sports scientists. I would say to a lot of young coaches, either pick that model and learn about everything or specialize in one. Like become, um, and I've seen both successful. I'm, I went more of the holistic approach. Because I want to be eventually want to be a you know a team manager and have people specialists work with me. The other way is become a specialist. You like become the best personal trainer. You know, like look at Joner one hundred and one. You know, he specialized in personal training or become the best at uh, um, strength and conditioning or the best at sports psychology. You know, look at Don McNaughton and guys like that. So I would say, coach, decide what you want to do and then stick to it for five to ten years. Either say I'm going to learn about everything, or I'm going to pick one. So that'd be my my first advice to like a a young coach coming through. Pick pick one of those two things, and then I think this is now getting into the kind of like social part of it. I think as a young coach, I'd say pick one of these two. Either be really um, ethical and be a really good person, and try and be nice to everybody, and be consistently nice, and kind of let karma guide your future. Like kind of, you don't need to be soft. I'm not saying you have to be soft and let other teams win. Be competitive, you know, still try and win, but ultimately have high standards of what how you behave before and after games. Like I think that's like write down like 20, 30 action items that you feel are important for you as a how you'd want your reputation to be, how you interact with parents, how you behave when you're under pressure. Like how do you behave when you lose a game to like a dodgy penalty in the last minute? Like or 
you could go the other way. So there's two there's two ways I would advise to go. Like be super ethical, like be nice, be, be known as a nice guy and, and good karma and, and build a good network. Or I've seen other people be successful when they are a little bit cutthroat and selfish and pushy and aggressive, you know, like asking your boss to get the top team, asking your boss, like, I want more money for this or I want I want to be co- I want to go on that trip to to, you know, Los Angeles or, where, you know, so that's I, I, I've gone for more the kind of like build a good network and try and like you know try and have a good a good people um people skills and people connection you know but I, I think both work hopefully that makes sense and i've seen guys who are kind of ruthless in what they want like they're like yeah I'm, have i joined this club i want to be i want to be the technical director within a year i want to be coaching the top team so it does work right but sometimes if you me personally i think if you if you make shortcuts then you eventually kind of can run out of ideas like but i've seen it work where people are quite aggressive and then i think the third part would be again twofold um either spend the first three to four years of your coaching and um, chasing knowledge so like volunteer work for free learn 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 or the flip side of that is build financial security first so then later in your life you can work for you basically could volunteer with the top clubs for free, like a college or NAIA or wherever. You know. And to do that, when I say financial security, how many young coaches from the UK come over um, and know nothing about American credit scores, um, how to get a mortgage, investments, how to set up a business, LLC, taxes, all that kind of stuff. I guess maybe your typical young American coach would, would um, maybe know a little bit of stuff. Maybe not, though. So my, my advice is I've, I've kind of given six things there though but they're three it's almost like a bit contradictory right um, and i guess you could be somewhere in the middle but those are things those are types of people that i've seen be successful so hopefully any questions on that or did that did that make sense uh, that made perfect sense and i think that's a great advice to the, all the coaches that are listening i i think um you know really diving into i know which one uh i'm gonna lead towards but um i really appreciate that mark um, everything we've gone over today has been in depth. You've been an open book about it. It's been um, easy to understand, easy to follow, which is something where why um, you know it makes you such a great coach, right? If uh, we're able to follow it via podcast, we know the uh, players are able to follow it. So, thank you, Mark. Um, we want to thank everybody for listening today. I hope you guys took something out of it. And uh, yeah, once again, thanks, Mark, for joining us. No, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Roberto. I know. I'll see you in a few weeks down in L.A., hopefully. Sounds good. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to The Soccer Cat. Reach out on social media or via email. Let us know who you want to hear from or topics that you'd like to hear about. Thanks for listening. And as always, who will be capped next? Next.